So I'm not going to go into specifics, but I'm working on a freelance piece. And last week, I traveled to a far-off city to track some people down. Only, I sort of failed. I found none of the people that I needed. Not one. I even called home and told the wife, I just don't think this is going to work. But then, something surprising, not surprising happened. I found different people. People I didn't know I'd need until I found them. And now, I'm pretty sure the story is much better than I anticipated. And what I'm trying to say is, my long career is filled with assignments that change as they go along. Which is great. So if you're assigned to write about, I don't know, a Houston Texans halfback, and while working on it, you see the Texans punter walking around the locker room pouring tobacco juice in the underwear of his teammates, pursue that. Because it's a hell of a story, even if it's not the one you planned on writing. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Joseph Goodman, the AL.com sports columnist and author of We Want Bama, a season of hope and the making of Nick Saban's ultimate team. This is episode number 246. Let's sling some yang. Dad, your podcast sucks and you smell like vinegar and cottage cheese. All right, Joseph Goodman, thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. I am fascinated by something here. So you write a book <laughs> called We We Want Bama, A Season of Hope. And you look at the book cover and you think this is going to be your typical wrap-up ode to a great season, Alabama football. You look at the cover, you think that Alabama book, it's going to sell great in the South. He'll do his signings. Everyone will be happy, happy, happy. This is great. You go to the Amazon page, save your money. Too political. Not about Bama. Just a book about hating Trump. Not as expected. Your Amazon page is the greatest fucking page of all time. For any very good book reviewed. I was actually thinking like, you have to be insane. Like you personally in the South, writing a book about Alabama football, softball across the plate, easy to hit out of the park. I'm going to write a glorious book about Alabama football and how great Nick Saban is and the fans are awesome. And this is going to be a huge seller. And you do the exact opposite. And I just want to start by asking, are you on crack? <laughs> oh my God. Yes. Yes. I stay cracked out. Okay. I mean, Look, man, if I was going to write a fucking book, okay, I was going to write a book book. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it could have been the total softball over the park book, I guess. But like, that's just not how I'm wired at all. Like if anyone knows me like that, you know, they just know that that's not the way that I operate, you know, as a journalist. So <laughs> for me, it was like never a question. Now it's a, it's a wild story you know, about how that book ended up being that way. You have this idea for a book. I'm sure you do what we all do. You write a book proposal and blah, 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 blah. I would expect if I'm a publishing house and a columnist in Alabama is writing, pitching a book about Alabama, it's going to be about Alabama football, strictly Alabama football. Oh, that's great. We'll give you X amount of dollars to write that. We know we'll have a fan base in Alabama. that's going to buy it and a national growing fan base. How did you actually pitch this book? So the original... <laughs> So, so the original book was just, uh, yes, a much more fan driven, like decade of dominance, Nick Saban type of book. Okay. Alabama football love fest. But then the pandemic happened. Um, and the summer of 
racial justice injustice happened and it, everything completely changed for me. Um, it was the biggest news event of my life of our lives as a journalist. And, you know, everything that happened in the summer of 2020 just spoke to so much about life on a different level. Uh, so when it came to sports and, and Alabama football is just all encompassing here, you know, it has everything to do with everything, Alabama and Auburn football and the SEC. And so when I set about to write this book, I couldn't ignore any of those things. And so I said, well, how am I going to write this book if I can't ignore the, what happened in the summer of 2020? And I can't, I, I have to do it justice. So I just went all in on the fact that uh, this book was going to be about a little bit more about sociology and psychology and, and things like that than, than I thought it was going to be. And I just approached it from that angle. They didn't know that, though. <laughs> like, I guess they, I guess, and I love my, like, my editor, I just fucking love that guy. I mean, I would go to war with him and take bullets for him. I just love him so much. Any editor that I've ever worked with, you know, I have great relationships with because I know that the editor, the editor-writer process is so important. Um, and I value that so much. So I guess on some level, they knew what they were getting into with me just based on my background and, and my writing. But, you know, they had no idea what I was going to turn in, I, I, I guess. And so I turned in this manuscript that was completely different than the book proposal. I mean, completely different, an absolutely different book in every way. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and so... I was really nervous about that, especially being in my first book. But he sent me an email and said, this is not a sports book, but you really surprised me and I love it. And so that meant a lot. That meant a lot to me. All right. So you pitch this book. It's Grand Central as your publisher. You pitch it to them. You're pitching it as a book about Alabama and Alabama football. As you're going along and you're working on the book, everything in the world is blowing up and you kind of change your approach. Are you keeping him at all abreast of the changing shift of your book? Or do you just hand it in one day, give him these whatever, 100,000 words and say, surprise. That's right. That's what I did. <laughs> it's probably stupid as fuck. I, I mean, I don't, I, <laughs> you know, not familiar with the book process. I, it was, I didn't have a lot of communication with them during the pandemic in the middle of everything. I had a lot of family trauma also happen. Uh, my oldest son died. So it was, you know, it was a lot to deal with. And, you know, I just didn't talk to them a lot during the process of reporting and writing the book. But they gave me the latitude, I guess, to do what I wanted. And I appreciate that. <laughs> I do want to ask you, you mentioned that to me in a, in a text. And I want to ask you, your son, Joseph, died uh, in 2019, I mean, there's nothing to even, I mean, losing a child obviously is our worst nightmare times a thousand. I hate even to ask it in a book related question because it, it seems way too light, but. Well, I brought it up. It's okay. Yeah, no, you know, though, but I, I just mean like to go through a tragedy like that and be like, yeah, I still got to write this book. Seems like, like, I feel like if I lost my, my one of my kids, I just want to cry every day and 
bury my head in sand and live in a, in a comatose state? Like, how are you even able to somehow do it? I still am like that many days. Um, it's yeah. Everything you said and, and, and so much worse, uh, you know, when it happened, um, you know, I was so fucked up for a long time. And um, just as far as it's related to this book, uh, you know, they were really understanding. And, you know, I will just be indebted for them for life for that. And yeah, it definitely changed my perspective as a writer. It's when it came to this book in particular, because, you know, I had this enormous tragedy in my family's life and uh, my life and I was not going to hold anything back. I just told myself like it really put things in perspective for me. Like this is my only shot at this. This is not something that I'm going to take for granted. And if it's going to make people upset about some of the things that I've written, I'm not really going to give a shit. I mean, I've always been that way in my career, but you know, if I was going to have to give back the advance because they were like this book, we can't publish this book, then I was just going to give it back. If it was, I told myself if I didn't sell one fucking copy of this book because, and then I didn't give a shit. I was just going to write the book that I knew that needed to be written for 2020. And that's what I fucking did. So (laughs) like you said, the Amazon page, is really <laughs> I was really pissed about that at first, but I knew it was going to happen. But now I just wear like a badge of honor. <laughs> you one million percent should wear that as a badge of honor. First of all, no matter how a book is selling or doing, Amazon is the biggest mindfuck of all time because <laughs> we all measure. This is our new measure. We go to Amazon. Right. And the other thing is we always find our worst reviews like me. If I go into my Amazon page and I'm looking at reviews for my book for some ridiculous reason, I'm looking at the one star reviews. And I'm getting angry. Like, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. I have more one star reviews than five star for the for the book. Right. And so for me, that tells me it's like it's a pretty good book. Like it emotionally brought some shit out of people. So good, you know. Yeah. Well, the thing that's funny about the reviews is no one's saying this guy can't write. This book is poorly written. Uh, you know, this book even makes no sense. What they're really saying is. I don't like this guy dogging on my Lord and Savior, Donald Trump. And I don't like this guy bringing his political. And I will say, it's a fair take. Like you're a guy in Alabama, you voted for Trump. You want to read your book and read about the glory of Mac Jones. You buy this book, you're, you're, you're excited to read. It's your one book you're reading a year. You're excited to read this book. <laughs> and you're like, you're kind of like, what the fuck? That's a fair, it's not an unfair take. I guess that guy just had his head buried in the fucking dirt like for all of the whole year because everything about 2020 was about how Trump infected every fucking way of life in everything. And that came and obviously it had to do some, a lot to do with sports because, I mean, the sports world is just like real life. You know, I'm sorry that people don't want to feel that way or whatever, but, you know, it's just a reflection of our society. So of course it was going to be have everything to do with, you know, with our lives. And I mean, especially in the South and especially in Alabama, I mean, everything about Trump 
is in everything in this in Alabama right now. So he was at the fucking game. He was at the LSU Alabama game. You know, he's endorsing a football coach to be the senator from Alabama. Like, don't tell me, you know, stick to sports. It's fucking stupid. Okay. Like this Alabama football team, they marched the schoolhouse door in the August of 2020. And at that point, they knew they couldn't lose a fucking game because of the statement they made it off the field. So yeah, we're not going to stick to sports. Like this whole this whole exercise is about we're not sticking to sports anymore. All right. So I agree with you 100 percent. And I am the same way you are. Obviously, I, I write a lot about, you know, crossovers of sports and politics. And I, even when I don't want to tweet about it, I do. Is it unfair for fans to just want sports to be an escape? And for is it unfair for the fan who's like, look, man, I don't I just want to read about Alabama football and the glory of Alabama football. I don't want to hear your political takes on this. No, it's not unfair because, I mean, to a certain degree, I'm the same way, okay? Like, I can get that perspective because I'm a sports fan, you know? But that doesn't mean, like, the book that me as a journalist is going to write the book that you want me to fucking write. I mean, I'm going to write the book that needs to be fucking written, okay? Right. <laughs> and that's just that's just all it boils down to. You have a part. I just want to read a little bit here. This is uh, Chapter 7, Give Him Hell, Alabama. Wrote, when Nick Saban agreed to make a video with black football players that explained to America, quote, all lives can't matter until black lives matter. And then signed off on the final edit using a clip of himself framing the urgency of, quote, unquote, this moment in history. Guess who didn't say a word? Behold, America, the awesome power of Nicholas Lou Saban Jr. and the Alabama football Crimson Tide. The only thing strong enough to silence racism's mouthpiece of hate in our burning summer of hell. Love don't win all the time, y'all, but Alabama does. Roll Tide, Roll Tide. Praise our almighty and ever-living touchdown Jesus, Roll Tide. <laughs> Go in peace to love the Iron Ball and serve many various meat snacks at your tailgates. Hey, Donald. Hey, Donald. Hey, Donald. We just beat the hell out of you. Rammer, jammer, yellowhammer. Give him hell, Alabama. Now, whether you love Donald Trump while he was in the White House or hated him an awful, awful lot of there should be one thing America all agrees upon. No one felt comfortable with, quote, the most powerful man in the free world, unquote, having his fat, stumpy finger on the send button. And one of life's little victories, Trump dared not tweet about the tide. So, yeah, it's a great song. Who's got the rum? <laughs> I can tell you something I really think. I swear to God. I first started reading your book on a plane. And my initial reaction was, what the fuck? Like, but I, I, I got to say something. This is important. You remind me of like Hoyt Wilhelm the old knuckleball pitcher, and you never knew what was coming. Like, this book is a really fascinating, it's like a little Hunter S. Thompson, and it's a little like, but it's also like hard reporting, and it's it's kind of uncomfortable and sort of like a slider in the back. It's like a really unique voice you took to writing this. Is this your voice? Are you trying to write the way you talk in a day-to-day -day thing, or are you trying to sort of have an exaggerated Alabama kind of look at y'all, blah, 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 blah? This is my voice. I wrote it in my voice. And um, I think people appreciate that. But just as an artist, uh, I locked myself in a cabin for, a, for like over a month to kind of get in the space of what it was like to be what life was like for people in the pandemic. This probably sounds stupid, but that just energy uh, i wanted it to come across in the writing and in the and then in the book and in the style of the book because that's kind of like how we felt during 2020 so i, I really much much wanted this book to have that 
kind of, uh, you know, almost psychotic energy uh, because that's, we were all on the edge of that bullshit all the time, you know? So a lot of the almost like ranting, um, you know, almost free association that takes place in the book, it was all what I wanted it to be. You know, I storyboarded this, this book in this cabin. And I mean, it looked like I was insane because I had probably at one given time, 300 index cards taped to me in front of a wall and go, you know, and everything was connected and, and layered and just my process to writing the book was also nuts because I didn't, I mean, I'm a, I'm the full-time columnist for AL.com. So I didn't have a lot of time to write the book. Uh, so I went to this cabin. Okay. And I would wake, I would start writing at like one 30. So let me back up. Alabama's basketball team did really well last year in the NCAA tournament. They, and they made a long run. And when they lost in the sweet 16, like literally the next day I started writing the book and uh, I just didn't stop until the man, until the first manuscript was done. Did you actually take a leave? Yeah, I took, I took like two weeks vacation. Okay. Yeah. In total, I think. So anyway, um, and I was really appreciative of AL.com for allowing me to do that. And so I would, I got in this routine where I would wake up at 1.30 a.m. and I would write until uh, 7.30 a.m. And then I would take a two-hour nap until 9.30 a.m. And then I would write until 9 p.m. with a with a like a one like power walk through the mountains where I was in between, just to get my blood pumping and keep it going. And, and then I would outline for the next day uh, till like 10 p.m. And then I would go to sleep and, and wake up at 1.30 a.m. again and do it. And I did that every single day until it was done. Wait, so how long did that take? Uh, it took me like f- a little less than four weeks. Okay. First of all, that is preposterously insane, right? That is, that might be the most insane thing I've heard on this podcast, which means I love it times a thousand. So do you have, do you guys have a cabin or did you rent a cabin somewhere? So my in-laws, they have like a place on Lake Martin in Alabama. It's like a little, little, little place. And that's where I went. And I like, I wouldn't let anyone, anybody visit me. Like my brother who lives in Auburn, he came one time to visit me just as like, I think my wife told him to please like go, you know, do a wellness check or something. <laughs> okay. But like, I was just like, I cut off Twitter. All right. No Twitter, no TV, uh, no fucking nothing except me and the sunrise and the, every morning and the otter that would swim by. Okay. Like, I would turn my phone on once a day to, to like check in with Sarah, my wife, you know, cause I knew she was like, everyone was concerned about me. Mental illness runs in my family. Okay. So like that was a clear concern for them, uh, you know, but I just, that's the way that I wanted this book to go. And that's the way it went. <laughs> Wait, this is truly insane. I have to ask some questions here. Number one, 
did you like load up on food? Do you just have like a refrigerator filled with food that you started? Okay. With? So <laughs> yeah, there's like a Piggly Wiggly or Win Dixie, like in this little town where I was. And um, I just like went and bought, it was so unhealthy, Jeff. Uh, like went and bought a bunch of fucking pop tarts and ramen noodles <laughs> and Red Bull. <laughs> I didn't even end up drinking most of the Red Bull uh, just because I didn't like the way I felt writing when I was when I was drinking it. So I, I was eating these ramen noodles so much that like my hands the first week started to swell up and along my knuckles, they started to crack and break. So at the end, at the end of every night after writing all those words, I would have to soak my hands in ice water because they were so swollen and inflamed. And because I'm a fucking idiot, I didn't I didn't think like it's all the salt I'm eating. <laughs> you know, my hands like every night they were swollen. I would get like like an athlete or something. I would get I had two little buckets and I would just like dunk my hands in ice water <laughs> to get the swelling to go down. <laughs> Wait, this is insane. And and when you would wake up to write. All right. So it's one thirty. I'm going to write. I could see like day one, I'm charged up, ready to write. Day four, I'm ready to write. Day six, um, were you gas juiced every day to write? Or are you like- So what, what happened was I was more juiced the longer it went because, you know, getting through the first like three chapters after that, I mean, I, it's like I had thoughts coming like, Andre 3000 at like a thousand miles per hour, you know, like just in my dreams and in my sleep. And it was, it was actually hard for me to get those couple hours of sleep because I would just be like, everything would be racing in my brain. And I, you know, I had everything locked in and um, you know, the book has a lot of callbacks and there are a lot of like hidden Easter eggs in the book for people. If you like know what you're looking for and stuff. So, you know, I just, I was a, I was an insane person a little bit. Yeah. All right. You decide to write another book a year from now. Do you look back and say that was the way to write a book? Or do you look back and say that was fucking bonkers? I don't know. What <laughs> I don't really know. I don't really know. I guess I'm just going to do it the same way. I, you know, um, it was validating for me once I got, got going and I knew that it was coming together and I was writing 8,000 words a day. And wait, whoa, um, whoa, 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 wait, you were writing 8,000 words a day. I dude, I got to where like once I was really cooking, like I was writing six, seven, eight, sometimes 8,000 words a day. Yeah. Wait, I just want to um, say for people to understand the perspective. So when I write a book, I try to average a thousand words a day. If I can get a thousand words a day, that's good. You know, a thousand words a day. Good. If you have a 2000 or 3000 day, that's fantastic. The idea of writing six, seven, 8,000 words a day. I, it's not even on my, on my plate. I started out. Well, I started out like, okay, I just want to write a thousand words today. Okay. And then it got to where, wow, I wrote 3,500 words today. And then I'm telling you by the end of it. Yeah, definitely. By the end of the whole process, I would go back and I would count the words and the pages that I wrote. And it was like, my God, you know, I didn't, I had no idea I was possible. This was possible for me to do anything like this. It was just like flowing at, it was just pouring out of me like a faucet. 
You are the journalist answer to Castaway. You're basically Castaway, except a journalist with Red Bull ramen noodles. I mean, it's it's kind of almost embarrassing to talk about. Um, I think it's awesome. I freaking <laughs> love it. I seriously, I freaking love it. I mean, I'm all in on this stuff. And um, when you were done, so you leave your cabin and return to humanity, and you see the sunlight, and you, are you? Um, I gotta send you a picture. I look like a demon elf. Okay, like you do. Send <laughs> the picture. Oh my god. Are you confident that you wrote a decent book when you leave the hovel for society? I felt like I wrote a good book and I thought maybe I wrote a book that no one would read, you know, (laughs) I didn't know. I didn't know. I've never written a book. I was really proud of the book that I wrote. I knew that it was going to speak to a lot of things, you know, beyond the sports world. But I, yeah, like I'd never written a book. I don't know if it was, I didn't know what, I didn't know what to think. I, who knows? (laughs) Do you have people read it before you send it in? Like, do you ask your wife to read it before you send it or no, no way. No, (laughs) I just, I just like, I just sent it into the guys like on Google doc. And uh, I was like, okay, I sent it to you. (laughs) And like, I just kind of watched like all of a sudden there were like three or four, like, icons like everyone started like jumped into this thing i was like all right i think it's gonna log off now and go to sleep <laughs> wait so did you find the weight for feedback as torturous as most people do like you write this book you hand it in it's in your editor's hands and now you have to wait and see if they like it or not well i i felt like i had written a good book okay i didn't know if it was particularly the book like i said that they were going to publish like, I didn't know if it was a publisher book or not. Like, I honestly didn't know. So I, like I told you at the beginning of this podcast, man, like I really value the editor writer relationship. So everything that um, all the feedback that he gave me and everything, uh, you know, I, I loved all of it. You know, essentially he wrote, he said, there's not a lot of surgery that we need to do with this book. I'm just going to highlight some things that need to be better. And, and then I just, rewrote all that all that stuff that took me like two weeks or something i'll tell you something funny i have an editor right now who's who's he's great and he's pretty light and i have friends who are who in the business who are like i just love when an editor digs in and really does surgery to the book and and i'm always like i don't like i want him to say what your editor said you know like i don't i can't imagine the idea of like taking joy in an editor saying yeah you need to move everything around and blah 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 that's the worst (laughs) <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe another, I'll write another book and, and he'll be like, you know, we need, this needs to be completely redone. Like, I don't know, but the story that I wrote was pretty tight. And I, like I said, I really mapped it out um, and put a lot of thought into the structure um, and the narrative of the book. So it worked out. <laughs> You're obviously a, a, a fairly progressive guy. You write about sports in a very red state. Your book, you know, in a lot of places kind of takes little stabs at people and sort of philosophies. I'm except for a few years in Tennessee, I've always lived in very liberal areas of the country. Is it hard to sort of be in that environment, have certain opinions, want people to understand the opinions and maybe even adopt the opinions, but they're really not going to? Do you find that at all challenging either as a human or, or as a writer or both? No, that's what I wanted, dude. I mean, I was in Miami and I moved back home. 
I wanted to come back home to Alabama and, and be a progressive voice in the state. And I don't give a shit what anyone, I don't care if that makes people mad or, or whatever. Like, I mean, I felt like that's, that was my calling and what I needed to do. I was covering the Miami heat at the time. Uh, I covered the Miami heat during the big three era for the Miami Herald. And then I got a chance to come home and, and work in my home state and, you know, Birmingham has really progressed over the last decade, and I wanted to be a part of that. And, you know, I also wanted the chance to be closer to the people I love. And so it was a very conscious decision of me to, like, I'm going to move back to Alabama and I'm going to say things that need to be said. Uh, so that was a big part of why I moved back home. Does it ever feel like you're pissing in the wind? Mm, I mean, I guess a little bit, but... You know, if you're just honest with people and you give them your perspective in a way that is true to your character, then I, I think on some level people appreciate that. The South and Alabama is not some monolithic racist thing. Obviously, there are a lot of problems in Alabama uh, that go back a long time. And the book deals with a lot of that. But, you know, there are so many different perspectives in the South. And so... A lot of what I write speaks to that. Before we continue with two writers slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my daughter, Casey, who will be leaving for college next fall with dreams of becoming a high school history teacher. Fashion designer. I thought your dream was to educate. It is, but ever since you introduced me to 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise, my eyes have been open to the wonders of fashion. I don't get it. Dad, my new dream is to come up with all sorts of amazing designs for 503 Sports. So when the USFL games start up later this year, I'll have created all this merchandise for fans to wear to the stadiums of their favorite teams. Go Wranglers! Go Stars! Go Stallions! Casey, the USFL died more than 30 years ago. It's not a thing anymore. Well, that makes my future look pretty bleak, doesn't it? You mentioned you were at the Miami Herald for a long time. You did cover the big three of LeBron, Chris Bosh, and Dwayne Wade. I always hated big events, right? Like I was never a fan of covering big events. I didn't like the media crush. I didn't like the competition in a way, the cliches, the whole thing. Basically, you covered a basketball team that was a big event every day. Do you look back at covering that mighty trio in those years as a great time for you as a sports writer or a frustrating time for you as a sports writer? Oh, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Yeah, I loved every minute. So before that, I covered the Gators when Tim Tebow was there and Joe Kim Noah for the Herald so I was already used to that competition on the beat. When Tebow was in Gainesville, there were probably 11 full-time beat writers covering that team. This is before everyone started to hack away at their papers. And then so being in that environment definitely prepared me to cover the biggest story in sports at the time, which was the big three. You know, so I loved it. And that first year on the beat, that first year on the heat beat was uh, absolutely insane, especially for like a kid from Irondale, Alabama. Like we don't have major pro sports in Alabama. So I didn't grow up, you know, with that. Like I didn't grow up loving the Knicks and like knowing everything about the Knicks. Like I didn't grow up knowing everything about the NBA. In fact, like I needed to go review what a fucking pick and roll was. Okay. <laughs> like, I mean... <laughs> So on the, on the one hand, I was just like this dude that had like uh, the deer in the headlights some days. But at the same time, you know, I knew that was they put me there in that position because they believed in me and they knew that I could do a good job with it because I had just covered the Gators. So, yeah, I loved every minute of it. 
Actually, I just want to say Irondale, Alabama, the home of you and Marion Hobby, defensive line coach for the Cincinnati Bengals. They cannot take that away from you. Um, there, there are other we got other people from Irondale, Jeff. Fanny Flagg is from Irondale, the famous author. Deron Payne, Washington Redskins. His house where he grew up is like two stop signs away from the house where I grew up. Have they opened the Deron Payne Museum and gift shop in Irondale, Alabama? <laughs> they better. Covering a huge team with huge stars like you did. Is there a way to go about it? Is there a right way to go about it? Is there a way when everyone wants to talk to these three enormous figures to actually talk to these three enormous figures or do you sort of have to work around them? No, I mean, you know, this was before the pandemic and this is like you had great access for me. Well, you know, coming from covering college football where access is absolutely awful to covering the NBA was like wonderful for me you get to talk to these guys like three times a day, you know, and I was there every day in the locker room at shoot around, whatever. And I got to say, maybe it's different on other NBA teams, but Pat Riley, he's like the ultimate professional. He wanted all of those players to be available to the media all the time. And LeBron, I loved working with that guy. He was great. I mean, it's LeBron. So he's, his time is limited, but he would give me a one-on-one from time to time, which was great. It was such a media crush and there were so many people there covering the team that, yeah, it got kind of hard and you found ways to work around stuff. But I really appreciated just the professionalism of everybody in that locker room. It was I mean, James Jones is now like the GM at Phoenix. Shane Battier is a is a uh, front office guy. It, it was a great locker room to cover. Well, you had Tebow and Urban Meyer at the University <laughs> of Florida. Did you have Aaron Hernandez, too? Yeah. Yeah. All those guys, man. So. I always find it weird when a guy like Tebow, Tebow was like 21 years old and basically being hailed as the new Jesus, America's new Jesus, Tim Tebow. Isn't he still? Oh yeah, good point. He is still America's, <laughs> America's old Jesus now. When you're covering that sort of beat with the preposterousness of it all, are you aware of the preposterousness of it all or are you so dug into it that you're just chasing the story? No, no, no. I've always tried to keep the perspective of like how ridiculous this cult of personality shit is. And with TiVo, it was very much like that. I mean, people were getting like TiVo tattoos and <laughs> and just all this stuff. Yeah. So I definitely try to keep everything in perspective, you know, from like, I like to think of it from like this 10,000 foot like perspective sometimes, you know, just really go out and think mac- on this macro level, like <laughs> how does this really fit into like the world at large? Was TiVo in on the joke at all? No. You're not. <laughs> no, man. Tebow is like the most righteous dude I've ever known. Okay. Like he is, he, he genuinely is. Um, you know, I really like wanted to be skeptical of Tebow. Okay. But like, he's a good dude. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what's crazy is that everyone around him <laughs> were not good dudes on that team. Like, I mean, they knew what they were doing when they put Aaron Hernandez as a roommate with Tebow their freshman year. Okay, like they understood, you know, like Tebow is like pulling Aaron Hernandez out of a bar as he's like punching a bouncer. Like those Gators, <laughs> man, Urban Meyer, Urban Meyer. Was, <laughs> I know, I know in your podcast, you always ask like the biggest asshole you've ever covered. <laughs> I mean, it's fucking Urban Meyer for me, like hands down. Wait, why? He's fucking down. He's such a phony. He's such a fucking liar. Like, and I, <laughs> <laughs> He's just so full of shit on every single fucking level, you know? 
And he hated when I asked the question. I mean, he just fucking always hated it. <laughs> he would just like get this stupid fucking grin on his face and like, but he, he got so fucking mad. One time he told me he like, he hated to be around clowns. <laughs> You're the clown. Oh my God. I got this fucking hat made at the Gainesville mall with <laughs> like a, like a hat. It had six stars on it and recruits and six star recruit. Now I, <laughs> I wore it one time to, to practice. I mean, you know, that guy was just so full of it. Wait, I'm interested in something. If you interview a player, you interview Tim Tebow at the time or Aaron Hernandez or anyone about coach, they're going to generally say, well, you know, coach is one of the best guys I know. And he's really led us and blah, 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 blah. Are they as aware as you are that this guy is a buffoon and a clown and a fraud? No, hell no. Because no. it's their coach, you know, like so I was a I was a big baseball player growing up. I loved playing baseball and I was pretty good in high school. I had an asshole for a coach like he was not a good guy, but I would have just fucking ran in front of a bus for that guy. OK, right. <laughs> I mean, that's just how like the player coach relationship is, I feel like in a lot of ways. Now, it's different in the pros when you're a professional and money is involved and, and things like that. And, you know, you can just get cut the next day uh, and it doesn't matter because you're a piece of meat. But, you know, in college, there's still definitely that element of uh, father figure, coach, player relationship. You wrote a great column a few days ago. It was when Auburn beat Alabama, uh, beat uh, Kentucky. And it was basically sort of dog and John Calipari. I like John. Uh, you it's know. a smart column. Wait, I just want to read a little. You said, you know, Auburn has captured something unprecedented in college basketball when even Kentucky can't seem to fully grasp the significance. Auburn celebrated its first number one ranking in the AP basketball poll on Monday, and that's great. But what really framed Auburn's rise in the proper context was Kentucky coach John Calipari trying to patronize the Tigers and their fans three days after getting bullied on the plains by a superior team. They charged the court shirts off, Calipari said in his weekly radio show, and it's not a big game, Okay. I hate to see them when they play a big game. Take your shorts off, maybe. I don't know. But if I'm being disrespectful, isn't that everybody that plays us? It's everybody who plays us. They not only sold out. Folks, they sold standing room only tickets for 250 bucks. For 250 bucks, you can stand up and go watch the game. I don't know. I'm not being disrespectful. It actually sounds like envy to me. Or maybe fear disguised as hubris. It takes a special kind of personality to survive as a coach of Kentucky. So I actually appreciate Calipari for his quips and digs and contributions to college basketball. But Kentucky's famous coach seems to be a little confused by what's happening at Auburn. I love college basketball and football coaches because it's a combination of inflated importance times a million with <laughs> a weird propensity for cliches and high salaries and cool suits. They're the weirdest species in the world, from Urban Meyer to Calipari to Patino to you name them. Nick Saban, it, like, you must love coaches. They operate in their own weird worlds, man. And to cover it properly, I feel like you need to understand, like you have to break from reality. Like this is not normal. This situation is so bizarre. The fact that you have <laughs> the highest state employee in Alabama is a football coach, you know, like these are insane things. Okay. Right. And right. so you have to, I mean, for me, I have to, you, as especially as a columnist, you have to appreciate the fact that how bizarre this shit is, but then also at the same time, like, I, I mean, I like some of these guys. I definitely like Nick Saban. I mean, Nick Saban is great. Bruce Pearl. This guy's great. Calipari. I love that guy. They're just great personalities to cover. 
but they definitely operate in this bizarre, like fiefdom in the sky. You know, <laughs> well, I remember when I was at Delaware and they hired Mike Bray to be the head basketball coach. Right. And everybody loves Mike Bray. Everybody loves Mike Bray. He's just known as a nice guy. And it's funny because he just happens to be a nice guy. And when a college basketball coach is just sort of a normal, nice guy, he's turned into like the holy mother of everything. Like, oh, he's the nicest. He's not the nicest guy you're ever going to meet. He just happens to be a nice college basketball coach. Like it's, it shouldn't be that special. Yeah. There's different rules for coaches. You know, uh, they're, they're not treated like normal people. Yeah. It's super weird. Like you're just supposed to be nice at base level. It's not supposed to be like the defining character of your fucking life. Like just be nice, but no. It's super weird. Are any of these guys in on the joke? If you said to Nick Saban, like you're just, you're having a conversation with him, not for print. Do you get the ludicrousness of this all? Like you are getting paid gazillion dollars to stand on a sideline as these young kids, most of whom are African-Americans from, you know, rough backgrounds and blah, 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 are getting cheered on by a mostly white fan base in a state where most of their relatives were slave owners at some point, And half of them were probably racist and would never allow their daughters to date that wide receiver. Like, are you in on the ludicrousness of this whole thing? I mean, I definitely think they understand the preposterous nature of what they do on some level. Like, I don't know if it's like that extreme or whatever, but yeah, I mean, you have to, right? Like you have to just kind of like understand, like this is bizarre and everything is so extremely meta, <laughs> like every, everything about this. Yeah. Um, I am, as you noted, I am required to ask you before I let you go, your best confrontation with anyone in your writing career. What, what do you got? <laughs> well, when LeBron won his first title with Miami, he made a point to call me out during the press conference. Like that wasn't really a confrontation, I, I, but that kind of sticks out to me like, Something I wrote really irked him. So he just like LeBron was like, I fucking told you. How does that make you feel when that happens? Is that more point of pride or are you kind of slinking and you're slinking down and you're seated? Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, at the time it was just like, uh, I also write a lot of nice things, LeBron. Like, I don't know why you're just remembering that one thing, you know, but yeah, definitely you're kind of slinking in your chair a little bit in the press conference when someone's calling you out on like national television. Like, ah, right. you know, your next book, I'm just going to make you money right now. Your next <laughs> book should be urban Meyer. I'm not kidding. That'd be a freaking really good book. Actually. Yeah, not a bad idea. You know, you got the <laughs> fraud, the urban Meyer story. <laughs> oh my God. Well, listen, I'm going to give you a five-star review. <laughs> I love this. This is one of my favorite episodes. I'm being serious. And I freaking, the idea of you going all caveman to write a book and putting out 8,000 words a day and also like enduring a real tragedy in your life and pushing through and pushing through and just producing. I just think it's really, I mean, seriously, I just consider really inspired and really inspiring and uh, freaking bravo for you to you for doing that. I, I, I admire it a ton. I really do. Well, I appreciate that, man. And um, it was like to have you read things that I wrote on this podcast is surreal to me, uh, you know, so um, I just, just, just a podcast. Not that big. A deal. <laughs> it's cool though. I want to thank today's guest, Joseph Goodman for joining me on two writers singing Yang. You can follow Joseph on Twitter at Joe Goodman jr. And by we want Bama, a season of hope and the making of Nick Saban's ultimate team, wherever books are sold. If you have a chance and enjoy two writers singing Yang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I make no money doing this podcast, and I rely on word of mouth. Also, 
Check out my free weekly writing substack at perlman.substack.com. Music is by the great MC Whiteow. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing.